Hey, welcome to the Doc Porter Podcast. I'm Dave McVeigh, co-writer, along with my buddy Jim Ballone. Uh, thanks for choosing us. Every week we'll be dropping a new chapter, maybe even two, of our 2021 novel, The Doc Porter, which is set on Mackinac Island, Michigan, read by me. When we published the book in 2021, we really had no idea it would take off. It ended up winning a Michigan Notable Book Award and was an Amazon bestseller for like at least a few minutes. Uh, it seemed to have struck a chord, and it's been pretty amazing to see the whole thing take off. So why are we giving the book away on a podcast when we can also sell it on Audible, which we are selling it on Audible? That's actually a pretty good question. Um, in fact, now that you mention it, let's just forget this whole thing. I'm kidding. We're giving it away because we are building up to something really special. Um, coming in August 2023, we're releasing the prequel to The Doc Porter called Somewhere in Crime. In Somewhere in Crime, we go back even further to the summer of 1979. Mackinac Island was the backdrop for a Hollywood movie called Somewhere in Time, starring Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour. The hero of the Doc Porter, Jack, was 11 that summer, and he was the paperboy. He ends up trying to solve a cold case murder while bumbling in and out of the Somewhere in Time production. So anyway, enjoy the Doc Porter and get ready for Somewhere in Crime, which is coming in August of 2023 to Amazon and the Mackinac Island Bookstore, and hopefully other outlets, TBD. Thanks again for listening. Chapter 14, Reactivated. September 1st, 1989. Friday was cool and sunny. Nippy, as Gramps would have put it. I was standing in front of the post office, observing as a formation of cotton-white clouds over the bluff slowly transformed from Abe Lincoln's profile into a baby T-Rex in a cowboy hat. AJ skidded to a halt. He wore a pink blazer, a green bow tie, and white brogues. He also sported heavy-framed Buddy Holly-style glasses with no lenses. Somehow he pulled it off. Handsome son of a bitch, I thought. He opened up his blazer a peak, posing like a Sears catalog model. What do you think, he said, holding the position. Modern, but retro. Upscale, but old school. He struck a new pose, this time reflective. Country club vibe meets post-punk new wave. Sharp as hell, right? I shot him a skeptical once-over. You look like a young Rodney Dangerfield. Or Ronald McDonald going golfing. He thought about it, then nodded, pleased with the critique. I love both those guys. I'm escorting star power tonight, so I figured I might need some style. Something that separates me from the pack. Something that says, yes, these idiots are my pals, but no, I'm not one of them. You should see Candace's dress, Jack. Seriously, she looks like a movie star. Seriously, AJ? She is a movie star. You make an excellent point, as always. Where are you taking her, I asked. He cocked his head. Where am I taking... What are you talking about? Tonight's the Doc Porter Ball. We're taking the freight boat over to Squeegee's Bar. It's catered, man. Bound to be an epic night. He did another double take. Jack, you bought a ticket to this bash like two months ago. I completely forgot tonight was the biggest, most outrageous party of the year. The end of the summer bash. We called it the Doc Porter Ball, but it was pretty much open to anyone who could spring for a ticket and had a titanium liver. It was not for the faint of heart. The previous year, Smitty and AJ boarded the boat back to the island at the end of the night, buck naked, 
carrying the shuffleboard table from the bar under their arms while their dates belly danced in tiaras to provide cover. This ball was one-third formal affair and two-thirds Detroit Zoo. AJ leaned in and put his hand on my shoulder. We did everything we could do to stop this casino shit. It's wrong, we all know that. But that's just one more reason to make this year's ball a rager of historical, hell, even hysterical proportions. This may be the last one ever. Is this supposed to cheer me up? I won't be back next summer, AJ said. I mean it. I mean, what am I going to do? Be a crappier? A crappier, I asked? Yeah, the guy who runs the craps table. You know, no more bets. He raised his hands as if warning some imaginary gambler to stop. A crappier. Jesus, you're turning into Smitty. It's pronounced croupier. All right, croupier. Well, I don't want to be that either. I'm a showman. I'm Carlo Bologna. I'm the boyfriend in death's door. These streets are my stage. I'll be damned if I'll... You know what? Never mind. I'm starting to depress myself. He lithely switched topics as he reattached a bungee cord to his basket. What's the issue, he said. No date? No problem. Invite Vicky, the swimmer from state. I mean, at this point, it might as well. AJ squinted. Wait, scratch that. She's going with Smitty. Anyway, the point is, just because you have no date, no life, you live in the barn, and technically you're no longer a dock porter, doesn't mean that you shouldn't... Ah, he trailed off and patted me on the shoulder. The boat leaves at six. It won't be the same without you. He waited for me to respond. I didn't. Well, that was my pep talk. Gotta run. He checked his swatch watch and was off in an Italian pastel blur of pure id. I thought to myself, maybe Aaron would want to... Nah. I shook off the idea. I wouldn't even know how to ask her. Checking the McGuinn family mail was pure routine, spawned as a chore when I was a kid. Something that needed to get done every day. Like coffee or a morning poo. Without a family to speak of, the island mail flow trickled to mostly coupons and flyers, which would go straight into the trash. You didn't have to be a raging tree hugger to notice what a colossal waste of time and energy this cycle was. Open mailbox. Take note of junk. Toss junk in trash can. Repeat. The metal box, number 103, was five rows up and three rows over. I unlocked it and pulled out a lone, clean white letter. Something about it instantly screamed official. Not at all colorful and junky like the typical sales mail hall. And it was addressed to me, Jack McGuinn, Wild Cliff Cottage. This alone was jarring. I didn't receive a whole lot of mail back then. But the most intriguing aspect of the letter was the return address. Rhode Island School of Design. I'd heard of it, but only in passing. The sum total of my knowledge was that it was located in Rhode Island, and it was a design school, all of which was clearly indicated in its name. Also, that all the cool kids called it RISD. I ripped it open and began to read. Understandably, the letter was exceedingly well designed. Dear Mr. McGuinn, on behalf of the admissions team at the Rhode Island School of Design, we want to acknowledge the receipt of your application. We were very impressed by your submitted portfolio and achievements and feel that you would make an excellent addition to our student body. 
We would like to set up an appointment at our campus in Providence at your earliest convenience to discuss your potential enrollment for the upcoming... On and on it went with more college admission-sounding optimism. But I stopped reading and held the letter away from my body as if it were radioactive. I gazed around the half-empty post office. The place smelled like old wood and the metal of rows of heavy-duty mailboxes embossed with floral embellishments. The service clerk behind the counter, a big friendly gal, laughed with a balding old-timer as she handed him a package. Jesus, what you got in there, Benny? It looks illegal. Her accent was pure Michigan Uper. The old-timer wheezed back. None of your beeswax, Janie. Well, you have fun with it, whatever it is. Oh, I will. The old guy walked out with his package, a newfound skip in his step. Janie smiled to herself and turned back to her package sorting. I looked at the letter again. I was just about a thousand percent sure that I'd never applied to the Rhode Island School of Design, or any other school for that matter. It was an art school. Pink Floyd, Annie Leibovitz, and Andy Warhol went to art school. Not beer-chugging Michigan ex-doc porters. I climbed the spotless whitewashed steps of the Grand's massive front veranda, two at a time. The sky was overcast now. The rain was coming down. On the roadway outside the lobby, carriage drivers unrolled plastic coverings to keep their passengers dry. Usually, guests strolled along the porch at this hour and took in the expansive view of the Straits of Mackinac with the bridge in the distance. With the approaching rains, the guests had moved indoors to browse the lobby, which also served as a hotel history museum. Others were likely nursing cocktails at the Cupola Bar, situated like a fancy hat at the top and center of the wide, spectacular structure. I walked to the very end of the 600-foot-long porch where I'd first heard her play. There was nobody there. A chair and a table, a tasteful arrangement with a rose bouquet and a Grand Hotel-branded vase, but no Aaron. In place of her cello was a shiny gold harp. Did Aaron also play the harp? And why didn't I know the answer to that question? Can I help you? I turned around. A male staffer in a sharp red uniform stood at attention, holding a tray of five stemmed glasses filled with white wine. He looked vaguely familiar, but I couldn't place him. Where's Aaron, the cello player? I asked. He looked at me blankly, then at the instrument. That's a harp. Yeah, I know that. But where's Aaron, the cello player? He nodded back. That's a harp, he repeated. I understand, but I'm looking for the woman, Aaron, who plays the cello. I spoke slowly as if to a small, not-so-bright child. She's usually set up right here. He continued to stare, then looked at the spot where Aaron wasn't. He seemed to want to understand. Then he broke out in a wide, sunny grin. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I just started a few days ago. That's when it hit me. He was the stoner from the park. The loose, raspy patter was a dead giveaway. I thought you thought that was a cello, and I was like, bro, it's a harp. Anyway, um, she quit. He sensed my surprise, but charged ahead. 
No, but the harp player, Nancy, is awesome. I don't even like the harp at all, and I think she's good. Super soothing. Sometimes I just hang around this area, and I'm like, you know, I just chill out, and I listen, and it's really nice. So, yeah. He was done selling the experience and took a few steps back. He gestured to the wines. Take one, bro. They're free. Thanks. I grabbed one of the white wines and gulped it down like water. When did she quit? Let me think. Oh, I overheard them talking at the front desk yesterday that somebody named Aaron left the island. Something about going back to like, was it Amsterdam or Italy? Iceland? It started with a vowel, I think. Ireland? I asked. Ireland, of course. She was Irish. That's where they're like, you know, from. I nearly knocked the poor guy over as I sprinted down the long porch to get to my bike before it rained. Left the island. I hopped off my bike while it was still moving and brought down the kickstand. Trina was working the front desk, checking in a guest. She smiled at me as I passed. I waved and bounded up the stairs, took a left and strode down the musty hall. I approached her room, recalling my exchange with a honeymoon couple across the hall earlier in the summer. It felt like another lifetime. Her door was ajar. Music played from inside the room. I tapped on the door. It swung open and I wandered in. She emerged from the tiny kitchen carrying a cardboard box and let out a shriek. Jesus, you don't knock? I nearly wet myself. I felt foolish and creepy. Sorry, the, the door was open and sort of, and I heard you left. Did you use that excuse with the honeymoon couple way back when? Her eyes now twinkled with the memory. My God, weren't those two a couple of frisky rabbits? I didn't sleep for days, what with all the bed springs creaking. She set the box down on the bed and began placing folded clothes in a pile. She finished her sorting and walked to the foot of the bed, standing right in front of me. She didn't look angry or sad, just curious. What do you want, Jack? I'm sorry, Aaron, about what I said. The last fling king. All of it. I didn't mean any of that. I was screwed up. I overindulged and became opinionated, she nodded meaning you got shit-faced and became an asshole. Yeah, you could put it that way. Fine. I'm sorry about the crack upside of your head. It had to hurt. Unconsciously, I touched the healing but still lingering contusion on the back of my noggin. She moved back to sealing a Ziploc bag full of makeup. Cracks, I said, with an S. Probably the most pain I've ever felt. But the wounds have almost healed. I recalled hearing about Aaron's breaking a glass of beer over Gordon's head earlier in the summer, and I felt a vague sense of relief. At least there was another member of the beatdown club, even if he did happen to be my sworn enemy. I still don't know how I ended up with her. I mean, like that. It makes no sense. And it was true. I couldn't remember. She softened and smiled. She sealed the box, moved another suitcase into position. I felt a rush of resentment at how easily she could multitask during my big emotional moment. Nothing has to make sense, McGuinn. We're young. Have you forgotten that? We're on an island and it's summer. You're a doc porter. Well, you were. I'm a fool. We have our whole lives to make sense. 
fold up, pack, zip. I forgive you, fine, but tomorrow I'm leaving. My contract is up. There's nothing keeping me here. I pulled the letter from my front pocket, now crumpled. I opened it up and displayed it for her. Her face instantly lit up. She moved next to me, scanning the letter. Her jaw dropped. They want to meet you. That's absolutely class. It is absolutely class. But I don't remember applying. Oh, you applied. You just didn't know it. So this was all you, I said. I couldn't let all those great photos gather dust. So I gathered them up and shipped them off. She opened another empty suitcase on the bed and looked at me slyly. We happen to have a family friend from Dublin who's a visiting professor there in Rhode Island. He's on the admissions board. I FedEx your stuff to him a few weeks back. By the way, you wrote a lovely application essay. The theme was How I Found My It. I couldn't have written it better myself. I shook my head. It's one of the best art schools in the country. I looked it up. Damn right it is. So you better not miss the appointment, you vindictive asshole. That's the least you can do. Thank you, Aaron. She looked at me with a hint of a smile. No. Thank you, she said. For what? I ruined everything. For what? Hmm. Her eyes glanced upward as if she was checking a list floating a few feet in front of her. For chasing me down with a purple old lady scarf. For teaching me to trust the stars. For your front porch. For your grandfather. For your father. For the basket of your bike. She sat down on the creaky bed, deep into the task of remembering. Hmm. What else? For Anne's tablet at night. For indoctrinating me into the cult of Schwinn. For pretending to like somewhere in time. Oh, and the crazy dream. Who could forget that one? There must be more. Please, I said, smiling. Continue. Okay, fine. For doing something. You did something. I failed at something. Ah, well, you failed at many things. But you fought for what you believe in. And you deserve credit for that. I saw the articles and the photos. Jack, I was moved to tears. I did it to get you back. I studied her face, waiting for a reaction. She took her time. It's a good line, Jack, but I don't believe it. You had loftier ambitions, and I love that. She stood up, turned away quickly, and pulled a tissue from the box on the dresser. It's time for me to go. I looked around the room. You're going to need help tomorrow evening. I needed help a week ago, Jack. I'll handle the bags. Please, I said. She sighed, waving me away. Fine. The 5.30 boat tomorrow. No romantic gestures. She stepped into the bathroom and closed the door. Now go away. I need a right proper girly fucking cry. The concept of faking joy by pouring beer over my head with a bow tie strapped to my forehead made me nauseous. I admired the ability of the boys to focus on hedonism over psychological or physical pain. Despite whatever personal issues they had, the dock porters never failed to make it to Horn's Bar at night to cleanse themselves to the beat of a bar band and the soothing communion of cold strows. I remember being the same way when the summer began, emotionally bulletproof. 
I envied and mourned my former selfish self. I'd ghosted, avoiding the boys until I heard the blaring horn of the chartered ferry as it pulled away from the dock. I sat on the grass, slightly obscured by Father Marquette's statue, and watched the boat make the turn around the break wall and head to Squeegee's Bar on the nearby island of Bois Blanc, the venue for this year's ball. Locals pronounced it Bablo, perhaps due to a lack of interest in learning French. Even from this distance, I could hear the music and laughter from the ferry as it ratcheted up in direct proportion to the diesel's competing roar. They were going to have the time of their lives, antics, perhaps even shenanigans. It was the Dock Porter Ball, probably, as A.J. said, the last one ever. After I devoured two slices of pizza from Sarducci's and the park was shrouded in darkness, I rode back to the barn. I climbed up the stairs, stripped off my jeans, and collapsed on the bed, not bothering to pull back the sheets. Was she packed, ready to go? A subtle but noticeable switch seemed to have flipped. Despite her right, proper, girly fucking cry, it was clear she was no longer... What was the right word? Intrigued with me. Maybe it was all in my head, but something was different. But there was still tomorrow. There was always tomorrow. The apartment was dark now. A chilly fog, but no rain, enclosed the island. Damp, cool air drifted in through an open window, but I was too tired to slam it shut. The sounds of a steam shovel and crunching concrete pierced my eardrums. Gigantic, repetitive jackhammers pummeled a paved street. I remember those spindly machines from my childhood. When I was six, Big Jack had taken me to a construction site a few blocks from the dealership for fun. He figured I'd dig it. I didn't. I watched the collection of massive robotic machines demolished a row of old row houses to make room for a strip mall. It was methodic and organized, and to me, terrifying. Something about that inhuman, never-ending pounding didn't intrigue me like I'm sure Big Jack hoped it would. Instead, it felt to me like the end of the civilized world. The construction workers, all clad in reflective yellow and orange, also appeared inhuman. They never flinched at the endless booms and crunches. They directed and redirected impassively as if they too were machines. I hated it, but I kept my feelings to myself. A fake smile plastered on my face as my dad pointed out the various machines' names. That's called a steam shovel there, Jackie. It's not particularly manly to be spooked by giant machines, but the feeling of dread was visceral. Now these machines were on my island. Boom, boom, boom. I sat up straight. What time was it? How long had I been sleeping? I pulled on shorts and a t-shirt and ran down the stairs and emerged from the barn into daylight. The sight was horrifying. A line of machines had torn up the road in front of Wildcliff. I looked right and then left. Three of the East Bluff cottages, our neighbors since I was a kid, were leveled. Crushed, painted white pines piled up like broken matchsticks, along with the remains of wicker chairs, a porch swing, and old bikes tangled and mangled in a dirty mess of debris. And the sound, the sound was deafening. I ran to the fence that lined the bluff and leaned out, inspecting the harbor below. 
It was sickening. Cranes tore pilings from the yacht docks up from their roots. Lake water cascaded down, caked with brown seaweed. The boats were all gone. Main Street, now pockmarked with construction, was half-leveled. The beep, beep, beep of machines in reverse. The cacophony of smash, smash, smash. Boom, boom, boom. Timber uprooted and dropped in piles. The ragged, smashed remnants of history. Vomit pushed its way up, but I held it in. I ran to the closest construction worker, a huge man in orange coveralls and a hard hat. I waved my hands, trying to get his attention. I yelled to him, but no sounds came out. Struck deaf. He didn't look up and continued to direct another machine into place. Then it was horns honking. A traffic jam? I looked up at the road. Five or six cars were waiting to pass. Wait, cars? No, there were more than five. It was twenty. Fifty. They were lined up, waiting to pass. Honking. Getting louder. Thumping. Louder. Horns. Louder. The ground was now giving way. I screamed. Again, nothing came out. A bulldozer smashed into the front porch of Wildcliff, tearing out the supports. The roof came down in a sickening smash. What the hell was happening? My eyes shot open, but I was staring at the worn ceiling boards of the barn apartment. The thumping continued. My heart? But it wasn't a machine. It was the door. The door? I was completely disorientated. Someone was knocking. Holy shit, it was a dream. The knocking continued as I caught my breath. Thump, thump, thump. I'd always had vivid dreams. While most kids had the in-school-wearing-pajamas dreams, mine were a bit more specific and way more embarrassing. I'd once had a dream that I was stumbling around Johnson Elementary wearing nothing but a giant sun-made raisin box to cover my swimsuit region. In the dream, I wandered down the hall and into cooking class, where every girl pointed at me, laughing hysterically. In unison, they all threw brownie dough at me, all while singing a slow, creepy version of Yellow Submarine. Yeah, those were the kind of dreams I had. Thump, thump, thump. I shook off the freaky construction nightmare, stomped down the stairs, and whipped open the door. Cap Riley, in mid-knock, looked at me closely. It was an almost curious expression. He'd never seen me in post-nightmare state. Or in my boxers. It was hard to know what startled him more. What's wrong with you, boy? You look terrible. I'm fine, I stammered. I, I had a bad dream. Yeah? Well, that makes two of us. We got a big problem on the dock. Your knucklehead crew? They're stranded on Boblo. All of them. The freight boat had engine problems. We got a metric shit ton of luggage coming in today, and you're all we got. I stared into nowhere. They pulled my card, Cap. I mean, you know that. I'm banned. He rolled his eyes as if to say, You're going to hang me up on the details? Just handle the loads today, kid. Nobody's going to write a goddamn complaint letter. Trust me. The luggage piled off the boats every 30 minutes at a volume I'd never experienced. Why? Well, for one, it was the end of the summer. The last blast. Winters hit Michigan like a frozen 2 by 4 to lay everyone flat for five months, with nothing to do but binge-watch the Red Wings and gain pretzel weight. The Great Lakes State is a tease in that way. 
endless forests and trails, 11,000 pristine lakes and bays, perfect summer temperatures. All this fun in only three and a half months to pack it in. The panic usually sets in around late August. Everyone who has neglected to take a summer vacation decides, seemingly in unison, to pack up and head north to places like Mackinac Island. And that summer, there was an added urgency. People knew the island was about to become a construction site and a casino town shortly after. This might have been the last chance to experience the magic before the place became an unrecognizable row of slot machines. My morning was about the loads. Loads of loads. I stood in the epicenter of freshly deposited luggage, frantically sorting through a garden of name tags. What began as a Mount Whitney-sized task grew shortly to Everest, its snowy peak obscured by my own limitations. I was just one guy on a bike. But there was also some joy to it. It felt fantastic to be back on the dock, and soon I entered that realm artists and athletes call flow. It was an unconscious state where every move was right and every big fat tip was well earned. I chatted, charmed, loaded and unloaded, swerving through the insane chaotic streets with a focus and clarity I'd never before experienced. I channeled Foster in his prime. I imagined high-rise Jimmy Oliver, a legend I'd never met. I stole some of AJ's corny theatrics and Spangler's bookish logic. Smitty's skill for underthinking came in handy, and Fly's engineering adjustments finally made sense. On that day, I likely could have kicked a football like bull. Anything was possible. For that one shift, I was every dock porter, going back to the time they pushed steamer trunks off cruise ships for 10 cents. But still, Jack McGuinn. Hours later, patches of sweat darkened my green polo shirt. I checked my watch as I skidded back to the Arnoline dock. Somewhere else, Erin was prepping her luggage. There was still time. Cap Riley was watching from his perch on the upper deck behind his dark shades. Two more and it's over, boy, he said. I stared at the last of the luggage doubtfully, ran my fingers through my sweat-drenched hair. I had done my duty, and I had a date to keep. I called up. Can't do two trips, man. I gotta meet someone, Cap Riley frowned. These are important, big shots. They paid extra for luggage service, and they already headed up to the West Bluff. I shook my head, adamant. Can't do it, Cap. Listen, he said. I can see that you're wrecked. Time's not an issue. It is for me. I studied the luggage and did some quick calculations. Screw it. I'll ride them both. I straightened my bike and began the stacking process, bag after bag. No reason to hop out of the flow once you're in it, right? The load grew as I strapped in double-sided wings with Fly's cobalt bungee cords. A cooler here. Carry-ons will work here. Slip in the second set of clubs there. It was all working. Soon, it wasn't me stacking. It was ancestral DNA from my Irish Scott caveman heritage. Had they been stackers? Grunting, leopard-skin-wearing, I don't know, loaders of things? Had hunting techniques evolved by stacking rocks to see approaching predators? Was dockporting a survival skill? Part of Maslow's hierarchy, located in a secret subcategory between food and shelter? It sure as hell felt like it at that moment. I glanced to my right. Standing not five feet away was Rick, perfectly still, with an enigmatic smile. Hi, Rick, I said, straining to strap in another case. You still got three more to get in there. 
I looked over. Sure enough, three more bags. The rear wheel lifted a bit as the weight countered forward, threatening to shoot me over the basket and straight into the pavement, a brutal dump before I even pushed off. It's too heavy. I can't ride it. Yeah, high-rise is beefy. You don't have enough counterweight. He looked around. Give me a second. He set down his shovel and strolled into the darkness of the Arnoldine freight shack. He came back moments later with a 10-pound dumbbell in one hand and a rear bike rack in the other. A huge wrench poked out of his back pocket. With Penske crew efficiency, the old shit sweeper went to work, rigging a small platform on my rear fender. Then he chained the dumbbell to the rack. It worked like a charm. The bike was now steady, balanced, rideable. It was ingenious. Now we need to get them three bags up there, said Rick. He hustled over and one by one loaded the final bags into the basket. The load was now enormous. A monster. The biggest by far I'd ever attempted. This is a great photo op, Rick, but I can't see over it. I was struggling already. Shut your pie hole, boy, and let me finish. Rick moved to the front of the load and meticulously slid one bag out, Jenga-like revealing a perfect window to the road ahead. He strapped the bag to the top of the load. I was dumbfounded. Rick had just revealed the holy grail. A window. It's so simple, I said. That's how High Rise did it back in 75. How do you know that? Jesus, at least I have an excuse for having shit for brains. I told you this in June, boy. I loaded them. Rick had helped to construct that legendary blackjack load. I had forgotten, but he hadn't told me how. I looked through the tiny, perfectly formed porthole like a tank commander. No peripheral vision, no warnings, no wingmen, and I was already exhausted. I leaned the load again, testing the balance. Heavy, but rideable. Was I going to actually pedal this monster through the busy streets of Mackinac Island and up the Grand Hotel Hill to the West Bluff while navigating through a one-by-three-foot hole? Yup. As I leaned the bike again, a leather luggage tag smacked me in the face. I glanced at it absently. Then I looked closer. Property of Gordon Whitaker. You gotta be kidding me. I reached for a golf bag handle. Property of Blue Water LLC. It was the developers. The casino crowd. It had to be. They let the press die down, and now they were back on the island to get down to brass tacks. And I was hauling their shit. I was straddling it, strapped in with no possible escape. I looked up to Cap Riley. I'm not hauling this, I called up. Cap Riley darkened, pulled off his shades. You gotta. They paid the ferry line extra for the special luggage service. You don't haul it, it's my ass that gets chewed out, not yours. I don't gotta do anything. This Whitaker guy is... Cap Riley exploded. Jesus, this is business. Forget your goddamn useless vendetta and get that shit up to the Whitakers. It's over. You and the boys fought hard, but you lost. The old man was a professional ferryboat captain. He had a job to do and schedules to keep. Providing me with free trauma therapy was apparently not on his list. I was trapped. I looked away from him in frustration. Rick was less than a foot away from my face. A lit Paul Mall hung from his lower lip and he was breathing smoke like a sunburned dragon. His eyes focused on me. 
I'd always thought of him as a bit beat up from a distance. Too much horse shit and too much sun. An old, worn-out man. But at that moment, he looked almost, I don't know, handsome, intense, and energized. Like a ragged but fiery Paul Newman. He put his gnarled hand on my shoulder and leaned in. His voice was deep and gravelly and almost tickled my ear. Boy, this here's 22 bags. He patted one of the bags like it was an old friend. He leaned even closer now, breathing on me, the tip of his lit smoke almost touching my chin. This here's Blackjack. You want to show those assholes something they won't forget? His eyes were now blazing. Then ride the load. Ride the load.